Rare Cancers Australia, you're listening to Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Radio Rare. Today, as part of our COVID Connect mini-series, we go back to basics, addressing some simple but important questions about COVID-19 that can get swept aside in the turbulence of a -a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. So how does the virus operate? How do vaccines actually work? And how can both of these things affect people living with cancer? To address these questions is Professor Rhonda Stewart from Monash Health, who draws on her extensive experience in the area to provide us with some plain English answers. But before we begin, a reminder to all of you listening. We at Rare Cancers Australia have a vision that no Australian should have to go through their cancer experience alone. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on 1800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stewart um, or Rhonda. Rhonda Stewart is the Director of Southeast Public Health Unit. She's the Director of Infection Prevention and Epidemiology at Monash Health, and she's also an adjunct clinical professor at Monash University. Welcome to Radio Rare, and thanks for taking so much time out of your busy schedule. I realise that it's um, chaotic at the moment in Melbourne. Just to um, have a bit more clarity on COVID and what's happening in Melbourne particularly, we're we're now 18 months in. How has your work changed over the last 18 months, given we're in this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic? Wow. Um, well, my life has changed dramatically in the last 18 months. I've gone from leading a very small team of infection prevention nursing staff in Monash Health to dealing with COVID not only, not only in the hospital but also in the whole southeast as the director of the local public health unit. And that involves contact tracing within the hospital, within the entire southeast, as well as leading the vaccination program for the for the southeast, um, and also a lot of the community engagement. So it's a it's been very busy. That's a lot of different facets: doing contact contact tracing and the vaccination program, and running the COVID unit. That's a lot of different, I suppose, fingers. How do you manage all of that, Rhonda? So I have an amazing team, teams that, you know, work with me, report up to me. So we have a huge team doing the vaccination program. We have another huge team doing the testing surveillance program. Um, And then we have a whole contact tracing team now doing all the contact tracing. So it's a a multi-pronged approach that the whole Southeast Public Health Unit um, has under its banner. Okay, thanks for explaining that. So do you mind telling us, I know we've heard a lot of stuff in the media about different things about the way COVID or the SARS-CoV-2 virus works. And sometimes it's difficult for many in our community to know what is the real information. So can you please tell us in your own words how SARS-CoV-2 works and how it makes us sick, just kind of in a basic way? Yeah, well, the the, the SARS coronavirus is... uh... It's a cousin, really, of the normal cold virus, but it has um, obviously very different components. One of the um, parts of the coronavirus is it's got these nice spikes on the outside, which makes it look quite pretty under the microscope. 
and it also gives it this name of corona because it's got the spikes around the outside of the virus. But those spikes allow it to be breathed in through the nose or through the mouth and attached to the respiratory tree and, and enter the body that way. So it's a respiratory-borne virus that when it enters the body um, can cause a variety of symptoms. Some people are asymptomatic. Some people have very mild cold-like symptoms. And then it goes all the way through to really severe disease and some people die. So we know that there's a whole range of symptoms that go along with, with acquiring this virus. And that's why it's important that we protect the most vulnerable who are most likely to get very sick from this virus. And so it seems, it sounds like it's affecting, well, we're more aware that it's affecting more body systems than just the respiratory tract. Is that right? Yeah, so the, the component about this virus that's interesting is that, you know, it, it obviously is a respiratory virus and we get normal flu-like symptoms to begin with, but it also has a, a component that stimulates our immune response. And some people who get the virus have the normal just flu-like symptoms, but the immune response that actually can actually flow from actually acquiring that virus can actually be something that actually makes the disease a lot worse. And we actually see people deteriorating because of this intense immune response that we actually, when they get to hospital, we use immunosuppressing medications to stop that immune response because that is one of the very difficult things that is difficult to treat, but also can lead people to need intensive care support. So there is the virus effect itself, and then there's this intense inflammatory response that the virus triggers that is an, a real problem with this particular virus. And so, Rhonda, does it only spread by respiratory droplets or are there other ways it can spread? So I guess we've learned a lot about this virus in the last 18 months. We began thinking it wasn't going to be able to be transmitted very well at all. We thought that we could only be spread by really close contact or people coughing in your face. And now we've learned more that it can spread through smaller droplets, which we call aerosols. But in general, it actually has to get into your mucous membranes, either via your, your mouth, your nose, or, or via your eyes. That's where these uh, receptors are for the virus to get into the body. So masking is a really effective way of reducing that transmission of the virus. Correct, yeah. You know, the main public health measures, the use of masks, the physical distancing, they are the two really important things that everybody out in the public can do and should continue to do, especially while we have these large numbers. And of course, getting tested as soon as you get any symptoms so you don't spread it on to other people. This podcast is speaking specifically to members of a cancer community, specifically rare cancers. What have you noticed about people who have cancer or have been on cancer treatment with COVID? And then we'll talk about those same people with the vaccines, if you have any kind of observations of that population group. Yeah, well, we, we know that people um, with cancer or who are undergoing therapy for cancer have an increased risk of getting severe symptoms and disease from, from any infection, really. Um, and coronavirus is no different to that. So they are on our group of people that we are concerned about may deteriorate more than people with normal immune systems. But, you know, it's important to note that we actually are seeing young people who don't have any comorbidities also become very sick. So we don't, there's still a lot of, we don't know about this virus, um, in particular, why one person gets very sick and why another person doesn't. 
So that's why it's really important that we try and protect everybody as much as we can with vaccination, with the public health measures and with the isolation um, as soon as you get and get tested as soon as you get any symptoms. As far as the, the group with cancers and rare cancers goes, yes, we believe that they are more likely to get sick, but it's not 100% that's what's going to happen. Again, we don't really understand the why the virus is interacting with the immune system in, in different people, but you know, our guidance would be that getting vaccinated is particularly important with people who have any other comorbidities. Coming to the vaccine, why was this virus so hard to find a vaccine against? Well, you know, a vaccine was developed very quickly, but coronaviruses in general, why have they been so hard to find a vaccine for? Yeah, well, it comes down to, I mean, really this vaccine has been developed, the vaccines have been developed in remarkable time, an amazing feat of medicine and science, really. And that's because there'd been a lot of research before we knew about this new coronavirus in the platforms are being used. So, you know, the mRNA vaccines have been researched way before we knew about coronavirus. So although they came into play very quickly for a vaccine, normally it can take a decade or more for a vaccine to be developed from scratch. So actually having that background of lots of work already gone into play before we found coronavirus meant that these vaccines could be rapidly developed and moved out into the population in record time, which has been amazing. I mean, any virus, it's difficult to develop vaccines against any viruses that change and replicate quickly because we're always trying to find the component of the virus that stimulates the best immune response. We know that when you have lots of viruses in a community, they do change. Um, every time they replicate, there might be a little bit of a change. And that's why we have many different strains of the virus around the world now. But um, in particular with coronaviruses, you know, that the coronavirus is a common cold virus and there are many, many different types of cold virus. So we've never really been able to um, develop a vaccine that protects us against the cold virus because there are so many different strains of the cold virus. Hopefully answered your question. It's a complicated answer. Yeah, no, it is. It is indeed. Yep, that's right. We're talking particularly about the Pfizer and the Moderna, their mRNA vaccines, and the AstraZeneca is using a viral vector, but they're essentially doing to the immune system what all other vaccines do as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So vaccines prime our immune system to recognise a certain component of a bacteria or a virus that would trigger an immune response so that if we see the real virus in the future, we're protected. So they never, they don't actually give you the disease. They just prime your immune system. With the mRNA um, vaccines, as you said, Pfizer and Moderna are basically the same with different names. I think people are a bit confused now that we've got this Moderna and people are thinking Pfizer's the gold one, that's the best one. But Moderna and Pfizer are basically the same. Um, and what they do, it's, it's a really amazing vaccine, I think, that when we give the vaccine, what we inject is a little recipe into our systems. And the recipe is just a recipe for our cells to produce a protein. So mRNA is, is the recipe and we tell our little our cells to produce a little part, a little protein that reflects or is very similar to the protein on the coronavirus. And that little protein can't do anything else except make our immune system react and we develop antibodies towards that protein so that when we see the real virus, 
that's got bits of that protein on it, our immune system recognises it and fights it off. It's an amazing technology, amazing in that we can develop so quickly, amazing that we don't need to inject the virus, just we actually rely on our own immune system that's already doing this every day of our lives anyway. Um, and also it's quite flexible so that we know that if we need to change that recipe and modify it for different strains, that will be able to be done quite quickly. And maybe we might be doing that in years to come for different strains. So it's kind of like a, using, I suppose, tech speak, a software update for our immune system. It's just priming it for another virus that, that is going around in the world. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. Yeah. yeah. And can we just establish that mRNA does not go into the DNA, does it? It doesn't inter integrate into our DNA. No, no. The, the, the mRNA is actually wrapped up in a little fatty envelope, which allows it to enter the cells. It enters the cells as a little recipe note. Um, and once it's given that recipe to our cells, it's just degraded by the enzymes inside the cells and doesn't actually stay in our body at all. The only thing that's left is the antibodies that are formed, which we have antibodies to many, many, many things in our body um, to protect us against all the, all the pathogens that we could be susceptible to. And we know well now that the vaccine doesn't stop transmission entirely, but it does reduce it, doesn't it? So we have the combination of reducing transmission and reducing the likelihood of severe disease and death. They're the two actions, aren't they, essentially? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, these vaccines are 70% um, or more effective against preventing any infection and more than 90% effective against people getting very sick and going into hospital and dying. And that's what the whole aim of any program is, to stop people getting very sick and stop people dying. We do know that there are what we call breakthrough infections for some people who get vaccinated. And those breakthrough infections are usually milder, often asymptomatic, and you are less likely to transmit the infection if you do get it because the virus level will be lower, not zero, but decreased level of infection as well. So many, many good things about these vaccines to prevent people getting sick. Mm, it's very difficult to produce a vaccine that stops transmission entirely. So let's, let's just talk about those who are particularly vulnerable, people who are immunosuppressed, people we were talking about before who are on cancer treatments. They're the people we're wanting, they're some of the people that we're wanting to protect by building to herd immunity, which is having a good portion of our population immunised. In talking about those people, do the vaccine, we know that the vaccines are safe for them because we've talked to an oncologist who has said that he highly recommends, and many oncologists do, that these people get their vaccines. But are they equally as protected against the virus as, say, you or me who are not, I'm assuming, I'm not immunosuppressed? Do, do the do vaccines work as well? So we know that we need a good immune system to develop a good immune response. We also know that with the vaccines, they produce a much higher immune response than natural infection. So, you know, many, many times higher antibody levels with a vaccine than what you would get from actually getting the virus itself. So much better to be vaccinated. But we also know that in a subgroup of people who are immunosuppressed, they may not mount as good of an immune response as a, as a person with a normal immune system. And now as research is coming out that perhaps a third dose in the primary shot may be, might be worthwhile for those who are immunocompromised in certain groups. 
And um, it's my understanding that in the next week or couple of weeks, we'll see some guidance on that coming out. Importantly, that um, there will be some people that we will recommend get not really a booster dose, but a third dose of that primary immune, for that primary course, just like we give children you know, three shots of hepatitis B or measles, mumps, rubella to start to boost their immune system to start off with. So that's probably what we'll be looking at, at, at in the next weeks to come. Yes, I think Atagi just um, flagged that they were about to make an announcement with regards to that third dose for those who are severely immunosuppressed, which is really encouraging. And I also read that people who are immunosuppressed need to get vaccinated, but still continue until we get these third doses out, continue to act like they haven't been vaccinated using re really good precautions. Now we've had some people ask from our community, Rhonda, do the vaccines have any capability of reactivating dormant cancer or causing metastases? Are you able to speak into that, please? So no evidence at all to suggest that. And as I said, really all these vaccines do is prime your immune system for this one virus. That, that's all they do. That's all their, their plan is. Um, and so there should be no interaction at all with old malignancy or changing um, the pathway of um, malignant conditions. So no, wouldn't, it, wouldn't say there's any concerns about that at all. It's just really like encountering a virus and it's telling your immune system that this is foreign, foreign body, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. In terms of herd immunity, are you able to just, I, I just touched on that before, are you able to, from your, with your public health hat on, talk a little bit about how herd immunity is protective? Yeah, it's, um, herd immunity is an interesting concept, really. The idea of herd immunity is that you get to a state where so many of the population are vaccinated that you actually are protecting the unvaccinated by having that many people vaccinated. The difficulty with the coronavirus is that it doesn't 100% protect you against infection. So theoretically, people who are unvaccinated may are not protected by a population who are 70% vaccinated. So we're still going to see cases, people getting sick, if we only have 70% of the population vaccinated. And really, um, until we get more than 95% of the population vaccinated, we're still going to see lots of cases in Australia, because when you think about our population, 30% of our population is still a lot that could get sick. Mm. Yeah. So the idea, the concept of herd immunity um, is a good one when we, we consider a vaccine that um, is um, highly effective. I mean, these vaccines are very effective at preventing people getting sick and dying, but um, we will still see cases um, in those people who are unvaccinated for a while to come. Mm. And and what does the what is the data around the world showing you about COVID vaccines being rolled out through the world at the moment? Can we establish that they are safe and effective? There's a, an amazing site called covidvax.com, I think it is. And if you want to go on that, you can actually see in real time how many vaccines are being given. They're giving about 300 shots a second around the world. So you can see it clicking over really quickly. And we've given more than six billion doses of vaccine, COVID vaccines around the world. So that's a huge number with very few side effects. You know, so many people have died from COVID. We've had very few side effects from the COVID vaccines. They're a very safe vaccine, safe for you know, anybody at the moment, age 12 and up, pregnant women, breastfeeding women, people are immunocompromised, safe for the majority of people. And hopefully soon we'll be able to even give it to younger children um, there's research happening at the moment on that particular area. So 
very safe vaccines and 6 billion people um, are now benefiting from getting those vaccines. Mm, yes, one of my children has had it because she's above 12 and then the other three I'm, wait, I'm waiting tentatively on, on well, I'm waiting on tenterhooks, I should say. So, so Rhonda, finally, what is your message to the general public right now? What's the main message that you want to get out? So I think at the moment, um, and I can and we can all understand this, we're, we're tired of COVID, we're tired of lockdowns, we're tired of what we've had to put up with in the last 18 months. But we need to keep on um, doing what we've been doing for the last, last 18 months, making sure we wear masks, making sure we stick with the guidance, making sure we get tested as soon as we have symptoms and isolating from, for others so that we can keep the numbers as low as possible while we get everybody vaccinated. Because the, the main thing is to get as many people vaccinated so we can not have so many people coming into the hospital. You know, here at Monash Health today, we've got 50 people in hospital, many on in intensive care, many young people, many sad stories about young families being separated because their parents have become sick. And um, it's, you know, vaccine would prevent all that. So, and we don't want our health systems overwhelmed by COVID. We want to keep on doing our normal care of patients with cancer. So with women delivering babies, with kids who need surgery. So we want to do all that without being overwhelmed by COVID. So the most important thing is to do the public health actions that have been asked for and get vaccinated. They're the, the big things we want to happen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rhonda. Thank you for your work in the public system. It is not acknowledged enough, but thank you so much for everything that you do and the busyness that you've been handling especially over the last 18 months. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us for another COVID Connect episode of Radio Rare. We are living in extraordinary times and uncertainty drives us to seek answers. It's easy to get swept away in a sea of conflicting information. We hope that by drilling down into some basic but important facts about the virus and vaccines, we have provided some level of clarity for those who are immunosuppressed and looking to do the right thing for themselves and their loved ones. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Mixing of today's show by Alexander Smith. Reporting by Dr Emily Isham. We are edited by Casey Virgin and myself and our episode music is from Audio Blocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening and we'll be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.